What is that mountain that you're facing? What is that thing that you're looking to or that seems to obscure your view of the Lord and what he's doing? You know, I want to talk about a deeper joy today. What is it that is between you and your faith, between you and the love of God, between you and the joy the Lord has for you? Just take a minute. Let's just give God our mountains. Lord, right now in this moment, Lord, where we know your Holy Spirit is emphasizing the things that you want to do for us, I just pray, Lord, that you would lift uh, away our mountains. I pray you'd clear the, you know how mountains are for us, Lord, they cloud our view of you. I pray in the name of Jesus, you'd break off, Lord, our vision of the mountains in front of us. I pray you'd break the strongholds of what those mountains do to discourage us. I pray against the lies of the enemy that are in the mountains of what we see. I pray against the resistance, Lord, to our faith that causes us to overcome, that causes us to rise sometimes to those places where we speak to the mountain and it's cast down. Lord, I pray over us today, Lord, that you would meet us, that you would connect us with you, Father. Move in a powerful way, Lord. Lord, use your word. Let your word go deep into our hearts today. Let it renew our minds. Let your Holy Spirit strengthen us in the inner man today. Strengthen us in our spirit, Lord, that which we connect with you with. Lord, that part of us that connects to you, we ask that you would connect us, Father, in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for what you're doing. Thank you that you do what's impossible for us to do. Thank you that you change our outlook and our perspective of things. Lord, you promised that the joy that you would give us, no man could take from us. I pray for breakthroughs today over atmospheres over our lives, God. Atmospheres over our heart and over our mind. I pray against disappointment. I pray against disillusionment. I pray against those things that rob us of the joy that is from you. I pray for breakthroughs over personalities, Lord, over attitudes and mindsets that we have, over outlooks and perspectives, Lord, that would steal our joy. And I pray for a breakthrough over this body today. Lord, even as spring is beginning to come into our view outside, that there will be a new springtime in our heart, Lord. A springtime, Lord, that brings that joy that you promised to us. Lord, we just say your word back to you, Father. You promised joy, God. We thank you in Jesus' name. There are different things that come against our mind to keep us in the past or to block us from what God says to us. And I I think one of the most powerful scriptures in the Bible is 2 Corinthians 5.21. And it says that God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. That we might become. Whatever sin separates you, Whatever things uh, are, you're attacked in your mind, uh, whatever things that you've done, whatever accusations that come to steal your joy, to steal your confidence in God, to make you just part of the, the broken world, it is Jesus who took on every one of our sin. He took on 
the weight of our sin, the guilt of our sin, the feelings of our sin, he took on every sin that you could name from the time Adam and Eve initiated sin and separated us from God. Jesus took upon our personal sins upon himself that we might live and experience the righteousness of God. That we are constantly becoming part of who he has asked us to be, part of what his righteousness makes us to be, part of that transformation that we are to live out in our daily life. Jesus became sin for us, that we might become God's righteousness, that we might be able to come boldly before the throne of grace, that we might appropriate everything that God has for us, because Jesus so wanted to fellowship with us, he took sin from us. There are times when we don't understand life. I, I went and visited my mom yesterday. She's 92 years old. She virtually is, has Alzheimer's. She doesn't remember hardly anything. It's hard to have, even have conversations with her because in a moment, she'll forget what she just said to you or you just said to her. And I feel like, wow, God, you're my mom. She served you all her life, and now she's in this place. And it seems like in places she's suffering in her body. She's suffering in her mind. And I'm wondering, God, why? She's an old saint. Why is she in this place? Why does she have to be in this home? And things that we go through, like things that we look at, come and what they want to steal our faith in God. They want to get us offended with God. We don't understand everything that goes on. But I know, even my mom's suffering, is she's somehow experiencing the sufferings of Christ that are going to bring to her even a greater reward when she does pass on. Is there an offense that you have today with God? It can be a very block to the joy that God wants you to have, to having a perspective of life and how he's in your life and how he wants you to overcome and how there's a joy that's being robbed from you and from me also. The deeper joy. Our key verse today is John 17, 13. And in this, Jesus is talking to the Father, and we've been kind of uh, eating a little bit out of John 17 for the last three weeks. And Jesus said, I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. And I believe that joy that he said to those disciples, and it was in the promise of those few verses in John 17 from 11 to 20 that talk about how Jesus was praying for us in that prayer, and he was appropriating <clears throat> that joy for us. He was declaring that joy over us. He was praying that joy over us as believers who would come and believe from the disciples and what they experienced. And we have to really use our ability of our faith to receive the joy that God has for us. And we have the ability as Christians to appropriate for ourselves that joy which Jesus promised. We can lay claim on the promises that we are supposed to live our life in joy no matter what circumstances that we're in, no matter what we face, even no matter what that mountain looks like or has looked like in our life. We know from the disciples and their experiences with Christ and living for Christ and being filled with the Holy Spirit, we know the things that they faced. We know the imprisonments and uh, having to run for their lives at times, uh, having been beaten and stoned. We know that they had this uh, joy that was, <clears throat> excuse me, that was beyond our own understanding, that they went such deep through such deep trials and tribulations and losses, and they maintained and experienced this joy that Jesus is talking about and promising to us today. The full measure of joy is for all of his followers. Jesus had a joy in returning to the Father, 
And part of our joy for us is because he went to the Father, he was going to the cross to appropriate our forgiveness, the forgiveness of our sins and the appropriation of our own righteousness because Jesus traded sin, our sin, for his righteousness. There was a trade. I don't think he got the best end of the deal because he had to suffer and he bled and he died on that cross for us. But there was a transformation. There was a transition. We gave him our sins. We received his righteousness. And that should initiate a new place of joy that we should live from. We have the right to be joyful because Jesus is our righteousness. Because we are not like this world. We are not like the sins that try to uh, put a cap on who we are and to keep us from experiencing the joy that God has for us. His joy was in God. He was happy because he was returning to the Father and we need to be happy because even though we're living in this sinful world, which Jesus said it's important that we stay in the world, but that he promised that he would deliver us from the evil that's in the world. And that prayer is constantly, no matter what we're around, no matter what atmospheres we feel, and we often feel different spiritual atmospheres, we are kept from those atmospheres. Those atmospheres can intimidate, but they can't lay claim to us. They can't hold us. They can attack our mind. They can give us feelings but the enemy has no power over us because Jesus has prayed in this passage that we are to be delivered from the evil one. So we have an ability to hold on to our faith and to live out our life in faith and to face the problems, situations, the mountains that come against us and to watch God bring us into an overcoming victory over those situations in our life. Matthew Henry comments on John 17, 13. <clears throat> Jesus pleads with the satisfaction it would be to them to know themselves safe. Can we declare that today, that we have a reason to be joyful today because we are safe in Jesus Christ. And what a satisfaction it would be to him to see them at ease. That we are at ease because we are covered by the blood of Jesus. We are sanctified by the blood of Jesus. And now us, since Pentecost, have been able to receive the power of the Holy Spirit to be with us that we have a safety factor, we have a Holy Spirit rising up in through us and gives us this protectiveness even over our emotions at times when fear tries to get us, that we can be at ease because God has our back and God's walking before us and walking in us. Again, John 17, 15. Don't take them out of the world, but, del out of the world, but deliver them from the evil in the world. He goes on to say, I speak this, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Again, he's rehearsing John 17, 13. That's something that can resonate in us, and we can leave here today thinking about God's joy is to be fulfilled in me and in my life. Matthew Henry goes on says, saying, Observe, Christ earnestly desired the fullness of the joy of his disciples. For it is his will that they should rejoice evermore. <clears throat> Excuse me. He was leaving them in tears and troubles, and yet took effectual care to fulfill their joy. Yeah, I mean, they've been walking with this guy, seeing the miracles, living in that place of security and peace, even though they were in a hostile environment and they saw people come against Jesus, they saw at times Jesus was, was, was almost like overrun and they were trying to throw him off the cliff. They, they tried to stone him, but he would pass right through them. They watched that and they knew God was on him. They knew he was God. And so they lived in this whole atmosphere of this great bubble of peace. And yet now Jesus was saying he's going to go away. So they're starting to feel the sorrow and terror 
of not having Jesus with them. When they thought their joy in him was brought to an end, then was it joy advanced nearer to perfection than ever it had been, and that they were full of it. We are here taught to found our joy in Christ. It is my joy, joy of my giving, or rather joy that I am the matter of. Christ is a Christian's joy, his chief joy, joy in this world. He is in this world, and the joy in this world is withering, he says. Joy in Christ is everlasting like him. To build up our joy with diligence, for it is our duty as well as our privilege of all true believers, no part of the Christian life is pressed upon us more earnestly to claim at perfection of this joy that we may have it fulfilled in us, for this Christ would have he would have us to be filled with his joy. In um, Isaiah 64, 5, it says that God meets us who rejoice and does righteousness. That God meets with us who rejoice. Ever um, brought yourself out of a <clears throat> time of discouragement by just beginning to rejoice? beginning to praise, beginning to thank God, breaking yourself out of a, uh, an emotion, out of an atmosphere, out of a discouraging thing, by just beginning to praise and worship. That atmosphere of praise brings us back into that place of joy that God has for us. The Old Testament definition in Strong's is to be glad and to greatly be happy. That's rejoicing. It's something that we can appropriate as believers to pull ourselves out of places of being discouraged. In Philippians 4.4, Paul said, Rejoice in the Lord, not sometimes, always. And again I say, rejoice. He reiterates that we are to be glad and to be greatly happy in the Lord. He is the source, he is the center of our joy, he is the focal point of our joy, he is where our joy comes from. We all know sometimes we, we try to find joy in different things in life, different seasons in life, uh, vacations, uh, different um, goals we have. We, try, we get joy at certain things at certain times, but how many of us know that joy is limited? Maybe your goal is to lose a pound. You lose that one pound, and you realize, I have maybe 100 more pounds I want to lose. You know, it's always that thing where you get you to your goal, and then there's a disappointment. You get over one hump, you get over one mountain, and there seems to be a few more mountains coming up. And those things can affect our, our attitude and our outlook about how joyful we are. Our joy has to be founded in Jesus Christ. He's our source. He's our rock. He's eternity already working inside of us. Another definition of rejoice is to be merry, to fill with joy from the Greek in the Strong's. Rejoice definition from the English-Greek lexicon to enjoy a state of happiness and well-being, to be glad. I think we see that in Paul's writings and Acts and the things that he went through, that he lived in a state of well-being and joy that wasn't affected by the circumstances he found himself in, those dirty, muddy jails, those prison cells, or being beaten and then thrown in jail and finding himself praising and worshiping God when you think, like, you're crazy! Your, your body's aching, you're all cut up, you're bruised, and now you're in this dirty place and you're praising God? It doesn't match our understanding of what joy should be. 
But that's why God's giving us his word. He wants us, especially in our day and age, to have a different outlook on what joy is and a different place from which we experience and appropriate the joy that God has for us. Jesus has joy in going after the lost. In this little situation, Jesus was eating with tax collectors and sinners. The Pharisees were there, and they were disgusted with Jesus that how could he be with these sinners? How could he be with these tax collectors? How could he be with these just sinful people that are all gathering here uh, at this time? And so Luke 15, starting with verse 4, says, Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety and nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? Jesus has a heart for lost people. That's all of us at one time or the other. And sometimes we might be going through, going through something as a Christian, we feel like, hey, I'm lost. I tell you, Jesus is going to go after you. Jesus is going to apprehend you and to restore a joy over your life and a joy for you that you can get up and keep going forward again. In Luke 5, he continues, So he runs after and finds it, and when the good shepherd finds it, the lost sheep, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Verse 6. Then he, the good shepherd, calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. There is a mutual source of joy for us with joining Jesus as he's going after lost people. And it's what we've been talking about probably the last three weeks, talking about nets last week, talking about praising God, talking about this passage of Jesus praying for us as disciples. That God is trying to do something. Uh, hopefully, I think he's doing it in other places, but I know in this body he's trying to do something. He's trying to connect us together. He's trying to bring us into this oneness, and he's trying to get us with a new vision, a new focus, and a new goal as a church to go after lost people. When we started a church 19 years ago, that slogan, God's Love Changing Life, was on our heart as we were writing down what our purpose of being here in Hollister was. And over these 19 years, we've seen a number of people saved, delivered, transformed. People in recovery, people out of jail, broken people come in, get transformed and changed. And we know God is putting a fresh mandate on us to reach the lost in our community. And so he, he's doing this thing inside of us right now. He's doing this thing of uh, kind of like compressing us together, helping us learn to get closer together, like Donna's exhortation today, that we are knit together, that we're trusting each other, and there's a, a realm or there's a level of this that we've been experiencing and happening together. And this is all part of what God's going to use to help us reach out. <clears throat> I'm just doing a brief uh, review, and Donna didn't know I was going to review. And I have this called the joy of people. We talked about nets, washing nets, mending nets, and casting nets last week. We are the nets because we are the body of Christ. But we have times where we need to wash over us. He has to prepare us to minister to people. He takes us through times where he does deeper healings in us because there are things that are not right in us and we don't really have the love of God operating in our hearts to love people. And so that's where the washing of nuts takes place. Where God, he's taking care of us as the 90 and 9 and he's making sure we are right. He's getting us ready for a harvest. Washing involves the blood of Jesus Christ, the water of the word from Ephesians 5.26, 
And then we talk about the mending. And it's us dealing with our issues. Sometimes we as Christians have issues <clears throat> that have lying dormant inside of us for years. I remember at 42, I had been ordained uh, in 93, and I really had a lot of uh, probably, and I still have this, probably my biggest area is relational issues, or uh, way I feel about myself, uh, and, and not feeling sometimes able to relate like I'd like to with people, and so I kind of pulled back. But I remember God started doing something in me, <clears throat> and he put two other couples around me, and I thought, wow, God, why did you have me ordained? I am so messed up. <clears throat> I am so broken relationally. And these two couples began to, to uh, just go through the, the different outbursts that would come up out of me, the different things that God began to trigger in these relationships. And there are times when I would go away and I'm thinking, like, I never want to be around these people again. I don't, don't like what they trigger in me. I don't want to, I don't want to talk to them. Or see, then the next week, I'd be with them. They'd be just accepting me and loving me as I am. And there's scripture, scripture, I think it's in Jeremiah, and he talks about wine workers. That he talks about uh, like this, this community of people that had not been poured, the dregs in them had not been poured out. They had not been in situations that pour out the stuff that's inside, the issues that are in them that only relationships can bring out. And just as relationships can uh, form us or misform us or cause us to, to have problems, it is the outpouring of being poured by people, again, who are part of the body of Christ that pour out those things that keep us from having relationship, keep us from having the love of God, and keep us from being able to relate and be with each other. And I feel like I went through that. That scripture just jumped out of me back there when I was 42. Like, this is me. These wine workers, these people, these couples that are putting around me, they are pouring me out. They're pouring out the junk that collected to me, uh, the rejections and things that I went through that keep me from relating, and they're bringing me through this healing process. And that's what he's doing. And I want to read something in 1 John 4, verses 20 and 21. <clears throat> John says in verse 20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For who does not love his brother whom he has seen? How can he love God whom he has not seen? And this is the commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother. I thought, wow, that's a great scripture. Because it brings us a check on where we're at relationally. If the love of God is not in our heart to love each other, then it's not going to be coming out of us to love the lost person that God wants to bring in. And so God is allowing us to focus on bringing, getting more healing in ourselves so that we can receive the love of God and be healed with each other that then the love of God be, can be so manifest we're ready to start pouring it out. And after that, the, after soul wounds are healed and there's this uh, different things going on, after the, the blocks to love are uprooted and rooted out and some of them are so deep, that it takes to, triggering to get them healed. Then, as we're healed, we can be those nets that are cast out. And we gather around people that God wants to bring in and, and cause them to be saved and transformed and healed, just like we have been transformed. But the church is always going to be in that process of catching people and allowing people to be healed and transformed by his love. You know, over the last three weeks, three weeks, two, we've been emphasizing praise and worship, praising God, giving, giving praise to the Lord. 
because as we praise God, it sets up that atmosphere of worship, but gets our, our mind focused on, on the more important things that we're related to God. So praise keeps us connected. It's like that constant uh, interaction and prayer with people. It's like kind of be, like being on your phone or being on Facebook or uh, you know, Twitter and all those other things that you're connecting with people. Well, praise keeps us connected with God, so there's this flow of the Holy Spirit to us, keeping us like above problems and situations and keeping a, a right perspective about life. Well, Paul, in his writings, he always encouraged thanksgiving. And I just want to read something from uh, Gordon Fee in his book, Listening to the Spirit of the Text. He says this, Paul's thanksgivings are most often expressed for people and not for things or events. I had never noticed that before. It is also evident of spiritual health. Here is the key to genuine and sound relationships within the community of faith, to recognize others as gifts. Do you ever start looking at each other as you are gifts? I look at you guys as gifts. And some of you new people are potential gifts. You're, you're coming in, you're checking us out, and hopefully you're going to say, yeah, I think God wants me here, and I'm willing to take some steps and get connected with you. But as we see each other as gifts, we see the potential in growing together and being able to influence other people for the kingdom of God and to see changes and see growth in, in the church, but growth in the body of Christ because of what God's doing. To see each other as gifts and belonging first of all to God, like each of us, we first belong to God. And again, sometimes we're trying to get something out of each other, or we want, to, we want to use your gifts. And as a pastor, I'm wanting you to get involved and use your gifts. But the most important thing to realize, you belong to God. And as you connect and belong to God, then you start connecting with the other people around, around you. No matter how nettlesome some of, this, of his gifts might seem to be to us, like sometimes we just look at each other and we think like, I don't know about your gift. You know, we get human. We kind of judge each other. We gifts, but no. We are gifts of God. We belong to God. But it's this opening up and having a different atmosphere with each other uh, and an openness to receive each other as, <clears throat> as who we are. That group of people did that for me in my quirkiness, in my relational dysfunctions. They looked past my failures and allowed the gifts of God to be nurtured in me so that you guys are stuck with me now. Thanking God for his people does not eliminate correcting or challenging them. Paul will still do that. But thanking God for them offers the possibility of reducing one's own self-importance in relationship to others. Again, we, we're going against the culture of our world, which says everyone is deserving. That word is used so much out there. You deserve. They see little kids uh, learning dance or learning music. You deserve to be on stage. You deserve to be a star. <clears throat> I mean... The whole thing is like, where's the humility that people need and see their need for God? No. People feel like they deserve everything. So it, it's, the, the selfishness is kind of blocking them from really seeing who they are and where they're at so they can get saved and born again and changed. And so it's that place of, of humility. Here again, Paul models a kind of spirituality that could we could well emulate. Whereas he came out fighting for the truth of the gospel and his apostleship as it related to the gospel, Paul had the wonderful capacity to take himself as a person with hardly any seriousness at all. When, or when one lives as a truly, per, 
as a truly free person before God, <clears throat> excuse me, others have little or no control over one's life. It helps us set free uh, in our controlling of people <clears throat> or trying to control other people's life. Just being free as who we are. And it is exactly that freedom that allows Paul always to give thanks to God for others who are his fellow heirs in Christ. I think that was pretty good. <clears throat> I found myself this week just thanking God for, for you. Even some of you people who have just been visiting don't know your name sometimes or can't remember your name, thanking God for you. Because you're, you're a prized possession. You're, you're a member of the body of Christ. You're a, a chosen person. You accepted Christ and God has plans for you and he wants to use your gifts and who you are. Don't let the enemy point his finger and point you to your past. You are free and you are now Jesus righteous because he took your sin in your past. Again, Satan's always going to try to condemn you about something or maybe there's something you're working on and it's not quite where you want it yet. Don't give up. Receive the righteousness of Christ. Let the joy of what God's doing in you and the work he's carrying on right now, let it bring contentment that he's still working and he's going to take care of those things. Heaven rejoices. In Romans it says, <clears throat> the kingdom of God is not food or drink, but it's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Again, the Holy Spirit is the carrier of joy in our lives. God's love is for people. God's love is over people. In Luke 15:7, Jesus said, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Ever thought about this? Why does heaven rejoice when a sinner repents? Why, does, why, does, why, does, why is that happening? I think if you would read Luke 16, 19-31, you can understand and get an eternal perspective. This is the one place Jesus describes hell and a person who went there and is in torment. And this person, the only thing they want, since no one can come and, and cool their misery and, and put a little drop of water on their tongue to make them feel a little bit better, since that can't happen, his only desire is to send someone back to tell his family so that they won't end up in hell. Wow. So you can think... But because heaven has the whole eternal and natural perspective, they see what's going on. That there is, <clears throat> there is an end to this life and people need to choose Jesus and come under the forgiveness of God and the blood of Christ and have their sins wiped out and take on Jesus' righteousness or they face an eternity away from God, an eternity of suffering. So I ask this question. Why don't I get joyful when a person repents and gets saved? We should get... It should be the focus more and more of our joy. Can you remember what you felt like when you accepted Christ? Those uh, exciting feelings, those emotions that were over the top? We need to have that excitement about people getting saved. And we're going to be seeing that in the future. We're going to be seeing people get saved and filled with the Holy Spirit and begin to walk this walk with God like we started walking. We're supposed to ask for joy. In John 16, 19-22, Now Jesus knew that they, the disciples, desired to ask him, 
And he said to them, Are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said? A little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, you will see me? Most assuredly, I say to you, that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. And you will be sorrowful, but your, joy, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. Again, they were grieving over losing Jesus. And death is always the opposite of joy. Jesus was telling his disciples that there is going to be a new way of life and a new source of joy. And not like the history of the past, when you, lo- when you lose something or lose someone. Probably that is the greatest pain that we experience is when we lose a loved one. Death is always the end of this joy of, we, of what we understand in this natural life. The sorrow of death is so incredibly hard. But what they were going to experience was Jesus' resurrection that brought a joy and something that opened up this whole thing about death that they had never seen. In fact, no one before really understood it. They had little bits and pieces in the Old Testament, but Jesus, being resurrected from the dead, gave hope that there is life after death. That there isn't uh, just an end and a person goes into the grave, but there's a reality of fellowship with God and heaven. So that place of joy is eternal. And it's a, a perspective that takes us beyond this limited natural life that has so many places where we don't know what's going to happen. And it brings so much insecurity in this life. What's going to happen in the next moment? But our security and our joy rests in who Jesus Christ is and what he's promised. He goes on and says, A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish, for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Therefore you now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. Isn't that something that so often situations in our life or problems or different things that we face, steal our joy. But our joy, our deep rooted and groundedness in Jesus Christ is a joy that no one can really take from us. And how many times, maybe all of us have gone through this, where something steals our joy for a moment, but we apprehend by faith that God's going to do something in this, something's going to change, and we just rise right up above that thing again, and we're thinking, okay, God, I'm looking to you. The joy promised us is that of, that of joy in Jesus Christ and eternal life. Death no longer holds dread of the afterlife. And in John 16, 23-24, Jesus said, And in that day, and right now is for us, today you will ask me nothing, but assuredly I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name, Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. What is it that would give you joy today? What is it that's on your heart that maybe you would ask God for, that God would grant you a higher level of joy? In Psalms 2.8, probably in the context of what I feel like God's trying to say to us as a church, comes out in this psalm. If you ask me, ask of me, I will give you the nations as your inheritance. I will give you all the people on the ends of the earth. Earth will be yours, your possession. People is to be our greatest source of joy, just as it is with the Lord. 
We're going to take nothing out of this world. We're just going to pass on. But we're going to be with a God who loves us and who sent Jesus to die for us. And right now, he's trying to change our focus from the things that are temporal joy to the things that about people. Us loving each other and us getting a heart to love people of all kinds. Because that is the greatest thing that we're going to take out of this world. Relationships. Loving people. Seeing people transformed and changed by Jesus Christ and coming into uh, the, the eternal world with him. Everything else became the empty pursuit of a temporal joy when it's compared to eternity and God. In Philippians 1.25, Paul said, I am convinced that I will remain alive <clears throat> so I can continue to help all of you grow and experience the joy of your faith. As we work with other people, as we become those nets, and as we're knitted together, we're able to extend faith to people that have really had nothing solid to believe in. And it is that thing that we can impart to people. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we can impart a faith to them, an ability to believe God, an ability to appropriate a faith and a joy that will lift them out of their current circumstances, that will give them hope no matter where they're at right now so that, that life can be better and God will be working in their life.